You're listening where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The prisons of the Civil War have a ghastly reputation. Andersonville in Georgia, perhaps the best known of all. But the prisons of the North were in many cases as bad as those of the South. Today we'll talk about the one with the highest death rate, Elmira, in New York. We'll meet with the author of The Business of Captivity, Elmira and its Civil War Prison, Michael P. Gray, on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and coming to you this Friday afternoon in April 2007 from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, in my luxurious Brewster Building office. But speaking, as ever, not for the trustees of the University of North Carolina who are meeting even as we speak, nor for the university or the system or the department or any of those just myself. My guest speaks for himself. We're all on our own here at World Talk, Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it's the end of the semester. The stack of term papers from the Civil War class looms in front of me on the desk, some of them outrageous examples of plagiarism that will get their their so-called authors in a lot of trouble. Um, easily detectable. It is amazing how students barely capable of putting two words together into an English sentence during classroom discussions imagine that when I read this fabulous prose with uh, clever metaphors and uh, titles of books I've never heard of uh, being cited uh, that I'm supposed to think, oh yes, and this is what they do in their spare time. Um, I'm sure there are some who fool me. I'm sure some plagiarists get away with it, but uh, but I've caught a couple by the back of the neck and am, metaphorically speaking, shaking them vigorously uh, uh, and, and preparing to uh, try to get them to, to mend their ways. Uh, not in this class. They failed this one, but, but maybe the next one they will, they will have learned their lesson. But the end of semester brings all kinds of uh, issues. Uh, on the 
on the good side, the Board of Trustees meets, even as we speak, to uh, hopefully rubber stamp this year's tenure appointees, which would include me, and allow me after this to uh, pretty much stop working altogether, put my feet on the desk, and uh, tell the students plagiarism is welcome. Uh, I'm just going to grade the papers by throwing them down a flight of stairs, and the ones that land at the bottom get the C's, and the ones that stay at the top get the A's. Uh, if, if the, uh, of course, they might not have actually done the tenure vote, so I didn't mean any of that. Never mind. Um, in addition, annual reports are due. Uh, my book manuscript is due at the publisher. There's this, there's that. There's so many things. And uh, I know our, our guest, Michael P. Gray, himself a professor, experiences much the same thing at the end of semester. It piles up. One of the things I was afraid of was that it would mean I would not have time to uh, give his book the reading it deserved before we talk today. And uh, I admit I may have done more of the, the sophomore skim than uh, than I would have preferred. But our subject today, Civil War Prisons, is, to be frank, not one that, that attracts me. Uh, we've talked about it before in the show. We've had guests who've uh, looked at, at uh, Civil War Prisons. And it's it's a grim part of the war. It's it's a, a ghastly part of the war. It's horrifying to imagine the conditions uh, the soldiers labored under, uh, both north and south. And there are some weeks when I think hmm, this week's book is one that I uh, I need to read, but it, it's not one I would have picked myself. But sometimes, and this is one of those times, then you actually open the book and say, hey, this is really something. Uh, there's more to the story than you think. It's not just about uh, the suffering prisoners, though that's part of it, but it's about much more how the uh, the prison fits into uh, a much bigger story, uh, a local, a regional story, and to some extent even a national story. And uh, with that, I'd, I'd like to turn to this book that, uh, that, that I turned to a little slowly, but now I'm glad I did. Uh, the name of the book is uh, The Business of Captivity, Elmira and its Civil War Prison, and the author is uh, Michael P. Gray. Uh, Dr. Gray, are you there? I am, Jerry. How are you doing? Good. And do you go by Mike or Mike? Mike is fine. Mike, uh, well, I'm glad you could be on the show today. Glad to be here. How did you get interested in this uh, subject of Civil War prisons? Um, working in my, my master's thesis at East Strasburg University, um, I was always interested in the battles, but also behind the lines, what happened behind the lines. And I know the Civil War has touched us in, in different areas. Um, Locally, being in northeast Pennsylvania at the time, um, I heard about, about a, uh, a train wreck that occurred um, with prisoners on board heading up to Elmira, New York. Um, with that, my master's thesis, I did a comparative a case study of Andersonville Prison and Elmira, uh, two of the worst uh, prison camps in their respective sides. And as I continued on, as I went on for my Ph.D. at Kent State, I had a very influential, influential advisor, Frank Byrne, who worked on prison camps. He had... Um, really guided me, mentored me as far as um, investigating Elmira because not a lot had been written on Elmira. The only book that came out was in 1912 by Clay Holmes, who was a local. Uh, the work was uh, somewhat biased. And I, again, through the, the guiding of, of Frank Byrne, looked at the economic impact. He, uh, he steered me that way, um, the economic impact of the prison camp on the local community. So, uh, well, I Let's start with a $64 question. Uh, which was worse, Elmira or Andersonville? Uh, 
it's that's hard to answer. Not to dance around it too much. The death rates. I mean, even the death rates are skewed. Uh, typically, Andersville is looked at as having a death rate of um, about 28 percent. And notice I'm using a limiting word about. And uh, Elmira 24.4 percent. So if you go by that, um, Andersville was indeed worse. Um, Frank Byrne and um, another person who was very influential, influential to me, um, John Hubble, uh, when discussing this and bringing this through the dissertation into the book uh, stage, you know, it, it really it doesn't matter if you're a prisoner at Elmira or Andersonville, or for that matter, Fort Delaware or somewhere else, depending on, on what the death rates are, um, if you're the ones that died. Now, at Andersonville, Frank Byrne always used to like to say Andersonville was like a mass hospital, um, you know, with the lack of shelter. Um, the poor food, which is prevalent at many of the prison camps, the lack of sanitation, uh, that sort of thing. You didn't have that uh, as much at Elmira. You had some different things going on at Elmira. Well, let's let's uh, go back. To, let's, let's work our way through the Elmira story. Sure. Uh, it initially, um, well, the war when the war begins, nobody's got any prison camps. That's correct. Uh, there's no expectation you're going to need one. Uh, what? Uh, of course, the war is going to end as soon as those, those cowardly Yankees give up, or as soon as we march on to Richmond. Take your pick. Uh, and and, and the, instead of a three-month war, it turns out to be a four-year war. Right. How? Uh, at what point do they start realizing we're going to need a lot of prison space? Well, I think in in '62 they thought about it, and of course they had the exchange cartel in '63, so that alleviated the numbers. Um, Elmira originally was a training uh, depot. You had three, um, even four different areas of Elmira uh, used as training bases um, early in the war. And then the Union realized that they had these extra uh, bases around. Now, you did have the beginnings really in 62 with the exchange system worked out, you know, trading a officer for an officer or a, a private for a private. And they also had a, a schedule worked out as well where um, an enlisted man would be worth so many officers and that sort of thing. Um, when Elmira uh, was established in 64, that's when the growth really took place. You had overcrowding at places like Point Lookout uh, Prison Camp in Maryland, and for that matter in the South as well. And there's uh, there's been recently some, some good books uh, taking a look at uh, the exchange system, uh, the proliferation of the prison camps, um, and that sort of thing. The exchange system, I, I remember Lincoln making a comment about uh uh, death of, of mules. Uh, the, the specific comment escapes me, but uh, to the effect of uh, brigadier generals, he could always make more brigadier generals, but he couldn't make a mule, uh, and and thus he was more. You know, the, the prison exchange rate should have been the other way around. Uh, <laughs> this is true. Uh, you know, six generals for a private, <laughs> but nonetheless, you have this this rather odd system where you trade people. Um, you suggest that breaks down after a while. It does. That's correct. And, and that was, uh, I assume, largely due to the, the African-American soldiers that's, being... That's through. correct. Uh, in part, I would say, uh, due to the African-American soldiers being thrown into the mix. Um, of course, you know, the South unwilling to exchange them, um, or for that matter, the, the white officers involved as well. You have that side also, um, which I've mentioned, um, you know, this idea of total war um, with Grant, you know, it's bad that uh, having POWs suffer uh, down south, uh, but the larger issue of winning the war and realizing uh, the numbers that the North had compared to the south, uh, he may have been a little bit more willing to, to let that happen. The sooner you, you, you 
use up all the South's manpower by capturing or, or, or wounding or killing them, the sooner you end the war. Exactly. If you keep recycling them through capture, release, capture, release, it's going to take forever. That's right. And even at one point, um, which you make a good point, with, uh, with Vicksburg, um, Grant was dismayed when he found out after um, taking Vicksburg and paroling POWs, um, finding these individuals fighting again in later battles. Right, for which they could be executed. That's correct. Well, I guess, no, if they properly exchanged, they could fight. No, if they're, if they're properly exchanged, they can fight. Um, at that point, I don't know as far as the numbers, uh, if, you know, if they would go to the extent of execution, um, but, you know, they definitely weren't supposed to be taking up arms again. Yeah, not, not if they've just given their parole. That's correct. There's another Lincoln story about that. I'm, I'm using my whole store today. The, uh, about the, uh, the little dog who, who made a nuisance in the neighborhood, so they... Some of the boys fed it some uh, gunpowder hidden in some meat and then uh, set it off somehow. And the owner finds the pieces of his dog scattered about and says, well, he was a good dog, but I reckon his usefulness as a dog is over. And Lincoln said that was Pemberton's army at Vicksburg. Just because you're finding <laughs> fragments still fighting here and there as paroled prisoners, its usefulness as an army is over. Uh, so Lincoln wasn't too dismayed. But Grant, you say, was yes. to find these men back in the service. That's correct. Now, the, uh, the you mentioned Elmira was originally a, a training That's camp, right. and in the book you, you point out the governor of New York says the, the first regiments of the state will assemble at New York, Albany, and Elmira. That's right. Uh, which one of these does not belong with the other two? <laughs> why, why Elmira, and the, the, the state capital and the state metropolis, and then... What's with why not Buffalo or Syracuse? That's a, that's a good question. They actually uh, they thought about that, I believe, for for a while. Um, and these places, I think, what they're looking for is somewhere far away from you know where the battle is actually taking place. But there's also another piece to it as well, um, in that um, the you know the contracts being negotiated between the government and through the railroads um, just had the Northern Central Railroad going through New York State, and that was one route that. Um, POWs were taken to Elmira prison camp, and um, the um, governor uh, from Pennsylvania helped negotiate the contract, and uh, using that Northern Central Railroad kind of helped them uh, make their way up to New York and uh, maybe uh, uh, profiting uh, this particular person as well. So, so Elmira is on the railroad railroad route north from Pennsylvania. Exactly. It's at an axis between um, the Northern Central and the Erie Railroad. So there was different routes that the, the prisoners uh, had taken. For instance, they could go from Point Lookout uh, in Maryland, in southern Maryland, and go by boat to New York City and then take uh, the Erie up that way. They can also go through Pennsylvania and take the northern central uh, via going through Harrisburg and north that way. Where, where in New York State is Elmira, if, if you can sort of Sure. Uh, Elmira is on the southern tier. It's um, roughly... Um, I want to say 30 miles uh, west of Binghamton, uh, not far from the Pennsylvania border. I think it's about five miles from the Pennsylvania border. Okay, Binghamton is still not helping those of us not from the area. Okay, um, Syracuse. Um, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Yeah, Syracuse. I'm gonna. It is uh, southwest of Syracuse, New York. So it's roughly in the center in terms of east-west. Exactly. exactly. Okay, and but not and far from the southern. Pennsylvania line. All right. Now, so that's. And it's a rail junction. Exactly, and that helped out uh, tremendously. And this is one of the reasons why it was used as a, a training point as well for the for the Yankees. Uh, this way, they can um, 
gather them up in New York State and parts of, parts of Pennsylvania, uh, even in parts of New England as well, um, and send them to Elmira, train them, and then send them down uh, either through the Erie or the Northern Central down to the uh, battlefields of war. Okay, well, so so it makes sense. Then. You start a training camp there, and you start to build the infrastructure there to uh, to house and feed thousands of men for the uh, of Union volunteers in six right. two. And once that process is over, you've got this empty. You said there were as many as four different camps in the. That's area. right. That's right. And, and they're all empty by '63. Exactly. That's right. And you, you know um, they all had a specific designation. Elmira Prison was known as Barracks Number Three, and that was the one that, that they put the 12-foot uh, stockade wall around and utilize that as a prison camp. So, by the the beginning of 18 spring, at least of 1864, you've now got a need for prisoners. You've got an empty camp at a convenient rail junction. It starts to make sense why exactly. Elmira. Was right, it becomes the perfect storm, so to speak, and and uh, things you know coming together for Elmira to be a prison camp. And on top of that, uh, necessitated by the overcrowding at Point Lookout. Point Lookout was just a, a tremendously populated prison camp. And um, at some points, the Union administration was worried about breakouts, uh, escapes, that sort of thing, and they wanted to move POWs further behind the lines. And, and Point Lookout is in Maryland. That's, that's correct. Not far from, not that far from the fighting. That's right. That's so right. Uh, you, you don't want that many thousands of rebels there. That makes correct sense too. Was uh, was was Camp Douglas in Chicago in use by this time? Camp Douglas was in use by this time, yes. So and that was another big one with a high mortality rate. And was Camp Chase a a prison, or was that just used as a union? Uh... That was used for both. It was used as a rendezvous point for uh, for troops, but also used as a as a prisoner of war camp. Okay, and, and also a house. parolee camp at one. That's time. correct. The that's the correct. union. That that's one of the stories that. Uh, Certainly, the students never quite believe when I tell them that uh, the Union held its own men as prisoners of war after they'd given their paroles, but before they were exchanged. That's uh, right. I couldn't help but laughing from the introduction to. I'm in the same boat as you in so many ways. I have papers <laughs> lying all the, all the all over my desk, having to grade. Um, but it was, it was making me laugh. <laughs> it, it, it's uh, it, it's the situation we're in at this time of the year, and they. Uh, and, and every once in a while you read one where you learn something new or get a new <laughs> perspective on something and say, oh, this is worthwhile. But then you read some ridiculous things. And That's right. And I actually have a con- when we're done here, I have a conference to run down to in, uh, in Frederick, Maryland, for the Society of Military Historians. So. Ah, very good. Is that in- involved with the, uh, the, the, the Civil War Medicine Museum there? Um, th- this one is not. This one is not. Uh, but I know that is down there. Um, this one, actually, I think next year it's in uh, Utah. Um, and like many of the conferences, it has various themes, but we have the, the, the Civil War theme. Um, and there's some presentations I want to see down there, um, one in particular on a prison camp. Well, that sounds like uh, a worthwhile thing to do, certainly. Well, let's take a little break here, uh, collect our thoughts, think about uh, where Elmira's going. And we'll come back in just a minute. Our guest is Michael P. Gray, author of The Business of Captivity, Elmira and its Civil War Prison. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Get a good look at a Confederate prisoner of war. 
We'll find out the answer to that question when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small business success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Mike Gray, the author of The Business of Captivity, Elmira and its Civil War Prison. We talked in our first segment about why Elmira uh, was chosen as a location for a, a prison camp, or actually originally a union recruitment camp uh, and training depot that becomes a prison camp later in the war. And uh, getting to the point after the exchange system breaks down, 1863, and both sides now begin to retain large numbers of enemy prisoners of war and need a place to put them. Uh, Mike, you mentioned something about a train crash. Uh, that happened early in the uh, the. the the, the history of, of the Elmira prison is that right? That's correct. That's uh, correct. Tell me about that crash. The um, the crash occurred in um, Pike County um, on the on the Erie. I um, actually teach a grad class where we we walk the site where it occurred. Um, what had happened uh, was the POW train had left New York City. Now this is when they were leaving. They went um, from Point Lookout by boat to New York City and then um, took the Erie Railroad. Um, North, um, on the way up in Pike County, there is roughly 20 miles of single track. So one train uh, would have to pull over and let one go by as the POW train, which was behind schedule, um, was allowed to go on these single rails um, on this mountainous area uh, in the Pocono Mountains um, right around a, a bad curve called King and Fuller's Cut. It met head-on with a coal tr- uh, train carrying um, 50 cars of a uh, of coal. Now, um, the reason there's various reasons why this happened. The the most, um, at least the one that I found information on is the telegrapher Duff Kent had been out the night before, um, parting a little bit too strong in Hawley, Pennsylvania. Uh, came to the job that day drunk and allowed this coal train to go on the same rails as the POW POW train. Um, in its aftermath. Um, the engineers tried reversing engines because it occurred at this really bad turn. Uh, they could not, and it led to uh, many fatalities, not only Confederate prisoners, but also Union guards. Mm. Well, that, uh, uh, there have been other 
railroad crashes. I think that the 24th Illinois was in a, a, a crash on its way to Washington early in the war. And uh, one, one could almost do a book of, of deadly train accidents Absolutely. after the war. Absolutely. And I, I wish I could find more about it. Um, I'm almost certain that the number of, of Union casualties are higher than really what was documented, but it would be hard telling a loved one, a, a brother, a son, uh, a husband, you know, that their loved one died in this train wreck, uh, wreck um, because of this person. Yes, that would be a... Uh, that, that would... You know, that book would sell well, too, because you got the train buffs and the Civil War buffs. Exactly. Uh, I often thought of that. <laughs> that'd be one to put together someday. Um, so the, eventually the... That train, or at least other trains, do arrive. Uh, how many prisoners does Elmira end up holding? Elmira um, ends up holding uh, 12,000 altogether. 12,000. Hmm. And uh, it, did it hold 12,000 troops when it was a training camp? Um, it did not. It held less than that. Um, I think at its largest, um, at one time I've seen documents with uh, about 5,000. Um, you know, that was at its, loaded at its gills. It wasn't recommended to hold so many prisoners, um, but due to the, uh, the exigencies of war, um, they were forced to do so. And the other, I mean, the other component to this, I don't know, we're probably going to talk about it later, but it, as far as the town of Elmira, um, it was a town of roughly 15,000 um, citizens. And, uh, you know, you have the 12,000 um, POWs along with 3,000 guards. Um, that's a lot more people in Elmira um, uh, due to this this prison camp. Well, so that, and that really is, is is much of the thrust of your book. So let's talk about that. You you got this community, this fairly isolated, not exactly a rural community, but a small town sure. with uh, farming going on, exactly. some mining, some other uh, activities, lumber, and uh, just kind of your mid nineteenth century, moderately prosperous New York uh, village. And suddenly you double the population by bringing in all these prisoners, guards, and so on. Uh, that's got to have an impact. Uh, I mentioned in the, the introduction to this that the, uh, the idea of taking a look at the prisoners, and you've got this fascinating photograph of the observation towers that the townspeople built. That's and right. Charged, uh, the owner would charge people to go up and stand in the top so they could look into the prison camp. That's correct. Uh, that that uh, how, how did they how many were there and how did they do that and how did it all work? <laughs> there were actually two observation towers. The first one um, was done finished by a gentleman by the name of Mr. Nichols, and the POWs were uncertain. They knew something was being built on the northeast corner of the stockade. They were just uncertain what it was. They heard the the banging of the hammers and that sort of thing. And um, you know Nichols, after acquiring this plot of ground um, outside the prison camp. Um, and as the tower was growing, prisoners congre- congregated to that side of the stockade, and they thought it was being used for military purposes, uh, perhaps another viewing uh, stand to take a look at, maybe to put some guns uh, on top to, to watch them closely. But um, afterwards, uh, as it was continuing <laughs> to go up, a placard was hung, and Nichols' placard read, Observation Deck, to which they view the prisoners, um, admission 15 cents, refreshments served below. So... <laughs> It was uh, quite an interesting thing. Um, the prisoners didn't react too, too well to this, um, people profiting off of uh, their captivity. Um, shortly thereafter, a uh, second observatory appeared, um, that one um, done um, 
another deck higher. Um, they, of course, had uh, binoculars. Um, they served uh, on the bottom of this. They had a little stand that served uh, gingerbread uh, cakes and um, um, some drinks, some uh, hard drinks as well, um, to, to view the, the, the POWs. And they would actually they would congregate near this and they would perform for the onlookers uh, in derision uh, for money being made at their expense. I, I mean that just fascinates me. The the uh, you have the culture clash on the one hand. The southern soldiers they're captured. They're these are warriors from battle, and they see this construction going. And they think, what military thing are the Yankees coming up with? And the last thing the the southerners would conceive of is they're going to make money. That's right. They're doing this. And uh, it's to look at us. It's for fifteen cents a piece, and then to build a second tower to compete. I guess it reminded me of. Uh, I, I lived at one time on the north side of Chicago, and uh, if you ever see the, the the Cubs play in Wrigley Field, sure, you know the old, the low bleachers in left field right. allow the people across the street in the apartment building to watch the game for free. So eventually, they start uh, basically opening the roof of that building and charging people. Uh, and turning it into a sort of observation of the Cubs deck, which then led to trouble and problems yeah, with that. It was an amazing scene. I mean, all, uh, along Water Street, you, you had vendors there uh, selling peanuts, you know, uh, beer, lemonade. Um, so it, it was, when you mentioned the introduction, as far as, you know, you think of prison camps, um, Andersonville, that sort of thing, and you really don't get this side of things. So it's a, it is a, a, a sideshow. It's a, it's a sure. spectator sport. Did eventually the people of Elmira just get tired of it? I mean, you, you can only cycle through the audience so many times. Right, and I think so. The other thing is, um, you know, I, I think some of the Elmirans eventually understood what they were doing. There's a story as far as um, two country ladies visiting the uh, the observatory, and they took the binoculars and noticed um, two um, Union troops working on the inside and bringing what they thought were goods back and forth to a, a different section of the stockade. They made one trip, a second trip, and a third trip. And on that fourth trip, thinking these ladies thinking that they were carrying food or clothing, you know, a leg dropped out on the side. And what was happening was nurses were bringing uh, dead bodies to the morgue. Ah. And they made their. It was mentioned that they made their uh, visit very short afterwards. Uh, that and um, you know, with the colder weather. Um, the one observatory remained. There was some indication that um, Union officer was uh, profiting a little bit by that as well. Um, so that's why the one remained. But really, with the colder weather, uh, you know, in this part of uh, New York State, it gets extremely cold, um, and that more than anything uh, did away with the observatory, the one that remained. Now, the paying fifteen cents a piece to to watch the prisoners, and I, I guess maybe codes of conduct were different then, but I can picture. Prisoners in that situation today doing all kinds of uh, derisive things. Sure. Um, uh, do we have any record of what the prisoners did to? Uh... We do. In fact, we have um, uh, a lot of the newspapers. Um, the reporters went up into the uh, the observatories and they commented how the uh, Confederates would congregate uh, out there and they would perform ground tumbling uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and it was just a, a, a different type of situation. Um, and the prisoners, it was almost he had a war going back and forth uh, in letters with um, prisoner commenting how waves upon waves of citizens will come up to see us, you know, in our, our, our bad situation. And what they would do, like I said, they would ground double, um, perform tricks kind of like they were in a circus. And hopefully, uh, you know, them being uh, in derision, them doing that would try to send the onlookers on their way. Interesting. 
Well, that's certainly the most direct and obvious way to make money from the prison is to just pay people to look at it. But I gather the, the town of Elmira made a great deal more money from the prison in, in other ways. That's right. Uh, what, what kind of things, what, what activity took place? Um, well, there. Uh, let me finish this with the observatory, only because oh, I came back. I, only because it came to my head. Um, the, one of the prisoners, probably, uh, he made one of the best comments. His name was Anthony Kiley. Uh, he eventually becomes mayor of Richmond, and he made the comment, and with this whole observatory fiasco, that he was surprised that Barnum had not taken the prisoners off the hands of Old Abe, uh, divided them in companies, and carried them in caravans through the, the country turning an honest penny of the show. Um, patriotism is spelled with a Y at the end of the first syllable up here. So um, these are some more comments. Just ending to the uh, that one facet of the money-making um, being done at Elmira. The other money-making, when you think about, you know, my argument in the book is, you know, you, you have a community of roughly 15,000. You bring 12,000 um, POWs up, you have 3,000 guards. Well, how are you going to take care of these individuals? And you know, not all prison camps were bad. They did take care of them. You had to provide lighting, so you had to provide kerosene. So the kerosene um, companies made made out um, whitewashing buildings, fences, that sort of thing, lumber companies. The uh, forests in around Elmira were denuded from their lumber because of the lumber contracts um, for the building of the barracks. Um, you have all ancillary things. Uh, the guards, four hours on and four hours off. Um, the guards liked to have fun when they were off duty. And... Yeah, um, they would go to the saloons and some other places and, and have a good time for themselves, and, and locals profited from that. So, politically speaking, it must have been a popular thing to have a prison there. Uh, well, um, I don't know if they thought that at first. Um, it ended up turning that way um, in some ways. Uh, it was something new, and I think we get the feeling with the observation towers. It was something new for, for locals to, to see. Um, to go to to visit, um, but just from the the, the the industries within Elmira, the different um, businesses, uh, they profit uh, extremely well. Now, one one way to profit, uh, as, as you point out, besides feeding and, and caring for the prisoners, was uh, disposing of the ones who died. Correct. Uh, uh, what, what was that story? I, I think no one exemplifies this better than um, an individual by the name of John W. Jones. And when I do my talks about Amara, I always mention, mention Jones, um, and that he was uh, a slave down in Virginia. He escaped the LZ plantation in the 1840s, made his way up to, uh, to Elmira, which was considered more of a liberal town, uh, got an education for himself, settled down there, um, ended up getting a job at the uh, local church, and he became a sexton there. And among his various duties as sexton at, at this church was to um, bury those within the congregation that had died. Um, lo and behold, in 64, when um, the prison camp is established there, the military approaches Jones, uh, the quartermaster, in fact, and he asks Jones if he would bury one of the prisoners who had recently died. And Jones accepted this. Um, what I found out was the burial process, um, those that buried the dead, were paid about $60 a month, and I think Jones got a little bit lucky. He was a bright man to begin with, but he didn't realize how many would die at Elmira, but he decided not to negotiate on the uh, $60 a month fee, but rather to do it per burial, um, and it was $2 was set. The number was set at $2.50 per burial. Um, with roughly 3,000 dying up there, uh, he made more than $7,000. He becomes one of the uh, wealthiest African Americans in his part of the state because of Elmira Prison Camp. 
Hmm. Yeah, he, he made the right bargain there. He did, absolutely. Wow. So, so people are profiting uh, from the existence of the camp. They've got the the guards to take care of. Uh, they've got the prisoners to feed. Feeding the prisoners was uh, uh, was a huge process. I mean, just just the the sheer scale of feeding twelve thousand people. Uh, how did that work? Absolutely. The, uh, well, what would happen was the government would um, take out advertisements in the, the newspaper, like the Daily Advertiser, and they would call for various um, either pork uh, companies or um, beef companies, and they would negotiate various prices. And the lowest bidder, um, the lowest bid that came in, they would write, write the contract out for uh, for that particular business. Contractors were allowed into the stockade. Uh, they were uh, given passes. Um, and they were responsible for a certain amount of whether it was uh, pork or beef, vegetables, uh, that sort of thing. But um, you did have this um, this component of, of Elmira Prison letting civilians in, letting these contractors into the prison camp. And it, well, they got in so they could do the cooking inside the prison camp. Well, they would bring the food in, and then they would they would be allowed in with their wagons, and this. Um, complicated matter for the guards as far as escapes go as well. But um, after the food was brought in, it would be unloaded and then brought to the cookhouse, and then it would be cooked there. So the union authorities were in charge of cooking um, the meals. What kind of food did the prisoners get? They got, um, it varied from time to time. Um, They would get um, beef, they would get pork, they would get some vegetables. Um, They would have down um, towards the latter um, months of the war, or actually of 64 into 65, um, the Secretary of War Stanton uh, basically made some provisions not allowing certain vegetables or vegetables um, to some of the prisoners because of what was going on down south at places like Andersonville. So, the, you know, typically what I say with, with Elmira, they were given some rations, not a lot, uh, beef, pork. Um, within that ration, it may be soap, that sort of thing, and there was much more of it, of course, in the early existence of the prison camp. As we move into 65, it becomes less and less, especially when the prison population began to explode. So they, they were served less food partly because a, a conscious policy decision to exactly to strike back in, in retaliation for Confederate That's right. Union prisoners. That's right. Um, not, not a pretty sight, certainly. No, no. Uh, you mentioned something about the diet being supplemented by uh, was it Eastman or, or uh, Colt? What uh, one of the Henry, uh, Henry Colt was the, the commandant? It could have been the count or, or the chief surgeon Sanger. Uh, my memory's fading already. Uh, who helped buy additional vegetables for the? That's right. Well, um, and this we have a sutler in there. Um, so the other thing that I, I, I did leave out, and we have a, really a marketplace that's established within the stockade walls. A sutler's allowed to sell goods inside the prison camp, so prisoners could supplement their diet. So they're given a certain ration, something that they want a little bit more. Uh, perhaps you know it could be anything from uh, food to clothing. Um, but you have a sutler inside the, the stockade. The sutler is taxed for all the profits uh, he makes. And the settler at Amira, his name was uh, Demarest, um, he provided prisoners with various things, whether it's onion, um, apples, fruit, um, vegetables, um, salt pork. Uh, chewing tobacco was extremely popular. That became the, uh, the currency within the prison camp. But here we have a, you know, a market that develops inside a, a prison for um, POW, POWs to supplement their, their rations that are getting, they're getting from the Army. 
Well, this this uh, raises some interesting questions. We'll come back to in just a minute, uh, like like how do the prisoners pay for these things? But we'll we'll take a break and ask that question when we return with Michael P. Gray, author of The Business of Captivity, Elmira and its Civil War Prison. When we return on Civil War Talk Radio. This week, the price for one drink of spit whiskey is five chews. Is that a good deal? In Elmira Prison, it might be. We'll find out more about that institution when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with my guest, Mike Gray, who has written a book on the Elmira Civil War prison camp. It's called The Business of Captivity, Elmira and its Civil War Prison. And as the title suggests, uh, it's not just about uh, what happens uh, in and around the prison, but the the business of captivity, the effects on the economy, the local economy. We talked about this some in the last segment, how people paid to see the prisoners by uh, forking over 15 cents to the owners of an observation tower, how people profited from the uh, the perhaps more legitimate business of selling uh, food, uh, fuel, clothing, whatever else needed was needed by the prisoners and the guards, and how a town of 12,000, if you double its population overnight, is going to uh, experience significant uh, economic repercussions, uh, good and bad. Uh, Mike, I'd like to talk a little bit uh, about something you alluded to just before the break, which is the economy on the inside of the prison walls. Uh, people are, are, are selling things uh, to the government on the outside, but you mentioned that there were there was a, a a legal sutler on the inside who could sell things to the prisoners. Uh, how could prisoners uh, afford to buy anything inside a prison camp, uh, given that they're uh, they're cut off from uh, from their jobs? Sure, that's um, a good question, and there's um, a lot that can be done with that um, in answering that. Um, family members could send money up. Uh, to the prison camp, and they would receive credit with uh, with the sutler. So that was one way. If um, money was passed on up, um, it went through the um, proper channels uh, through the military, and the whatever amount of credit, perhaps it was a dollar, that could be applied to the sutler's store, and that was one way for uh, prisoners to get money to to supplement their diet or their their clothing, that sort of thing. Um, another way, a more creative way, and um, which becomes a, a just a go into detail about this in a, in a chapter, uh, the economics on the inside, how POWs um, 
were able to search the prison grounds for um, for wood, for um, bone, that sort of thing, and they would spend countless hours um, making rings, um, jewelry, uh, this sort of thing. Um, and the question becomes, okay, so they make these these trinkets, um, how are they going to get them on the outside? And what I found was, you know, um, they established partnerships with the guards, and perhaps a, a POW can um, work week upon week upon week making um, a couple rings, find a guard, a guard is willing to sell this uh, ring on the outside, and we know how Myron's and, and local citizens already um, view the uh, Confederates uh, as curious, that sort of thing. Imagine having uh, a keepsake from one of them of their making. Um, so if, say if they got a dollar for this for this ring, 50 cents would go to the guard, 50 cents would go to the uh, POW, that 50 cents would be applied to the seller. So so there's a, a black market uh, established by creating things and selling them outside. Exactly. Uh, and it was permitted. Um, the, the commandant, Colt, um, you mentioned Eastman. Um, uh, many of the, the Elmira prison officers, they have rings. They um, send them to their wives, to family members, brooches, um, anything you can imagine. And uh, it becomes, and it's not just uh, at Elmira, it's at other places as well. Uh, what I found out through the prisons, um, you know, you have these markets that are established um, not only there but at other places. You mentioned uh, the spit whiskey uh, thing. Imagine this, and this is at Point Lookout. Um, you know, you can get duty if you're a POW. You can do big trenches on the outside. You're watched very closely by uh, Union guards, but um, you'd be paid uh, in shots of whiskey. And at Point Lookout, um, after digging these trenches outside the stockade, um, they're given a shot of whiskey. Now, what some of the POWs did was, after taking this shot of whiskey, they would hold it in their mouths, and they found out, um, you know, rather than swallowing it, if they held it in, and held it in their mouth and ran into the stockade, they spit it out into cups, and they could sell that within the prison camp community at Point Lookout for more money. So it became that desperate times. Lead to that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, but it, you know, it's this ingenuity, um, uh, desperate times, but being able to create these things and. Um, that's why with, with the prisons, I mean, there's all these, I, I tell students this all the time, especially graduate level, uh, there's so many facets of prison life. Um, I get into my book in, in a social order. I'm going to expand upon that and other scholarship. Um, but I found that, you know, if you're an educated inmate, you're at, you have an advantage because they send out um, postings for jobs to work within the prison camp for officers because you're going to be essentially a scribe, a secretary, and you're going to write out orders and that sort of thing. You're given um, uh, different... Um, housing, you know, improved housing, improved diet. They want to take care of you because essentially you become an employee, but that doesn't work for the the, per, the prisoner who's not educated. So they may have to resort to the ring making or the jewelry making. So you, you, you develop a, a social pecking order within the prison uh, where you say that the more educated ones can get jobs as, as clerks. Uh, and then, then at the... So this order doesn't really correspond to the to military rank necessarily. No. No, um, not so much in Elmira, because Elmira is an illicit men's prison camp. Um, in my future work, I'm going to take a more close, I'm take a closer look at the um, comparing enlisted men prison camps to officer prison camps. But um, it really doesn't matter on rank if you're an enlisted man, a private, and you're educated. Um, kind of uh, what I was talking about with um, Anthony Kiley, um, you can get ahead, and he was taken care of, and he was released early. Was uh, was Anthony Kiley? And he served uh, as one of these um, clerks to to an officer. Then, at the bottom of the the, the prison camp internal order, uh, 
Uh, well, who, who's below? Who's at the bottom of this, this ladder? The bottom are um, the sick prisoners. Um, through the diaries and the various primary sources I've gone through, um, even the, their own, the Southerners, looked at individuals that, for whatever reason, maybe it was because of illness, maybe it was they considered them lazy, that sort of thing. They didn't want to take the time to, to make rings, or maybe they didn't have the ability to do so. There was other things you could do. Um, but some, you know, stole from fellow prisoners, that sort of thing. They were generally the thieves within the prison camp there on the bottom, those that were very sick. Um, and it becomes, a, a, you know, cyclical in that if you, you're not feeling well, whether it's from dysentery, um, scurvy, this sort of thing, how are you going to, you know, have enough health, have enough patience to go through this when you, you think you may not live to see the next day? So, uh some people, there's sort of a sink or swim mentality here. That's right. That's right. And it was um, the sink or swim. And some, the fellow prisoners, I mean, at points felt bad for those on the lowest step of that social order, but other points saying, you know, take the time to do this. Um, there's, there's also a component with, with prisoners stealing uh, from, them, from fellow prisoners, and they were um, looked um, down upon, obviously, but also put on the bottom of the social order as well. And when you talk about stealing and about the internal economic order and black market, uh, you mentioned that tobacco uh, is, is the currency. That's correct. They they uh, they trade in tobacco. Everything is measured by how many chews of tobacco. That's right. So um, presumably they uh, the prisoner who doesn't have a tobacco habit is in good shape. They they don't have to consume their own. <laughs> and there's tobacco. there's actually a couple of reasons for that. Um, you know, down south tobacco. Um, can be easily had. Um, they would request um, for relatives to send up chewing tobacco. Um, and the prisoners, at least from what I found at Elmira, preferred uh, chewing tobacco. It could be easily divided into quids. Um, it wouldn't go bad for the most part. Um, and it could be, you know, a, a bowl of soup worth a couple of chews of tobacco. It could be an apple worth um, three chews of tobacco, three quids. Um, so it was something that could be easily divided and not go bad. And, of course, they couldn't have money within the prison camp. This is why they, they substituted that for tobacco, and they were always looking to, to trade that for credit with the settler as well. Now, besides trading and uh, making jewelry and so on, uh, the other activity that, that always catches people's interest among prisoners is escaping. Uh, right. Were there any escapes from Elmira? Oh, absolutely. Um, the, and there were various... Um, Ingenious ways of escaping, I think. Um, the one that I like telling is the, the one uh, prisoner of war who uh, made his way to the, uh, the dead house. Um, he was able to acquire some, some flour, and he put the flour all on his face. Um, he had a buddy working in the dead house um, lightly um, tap on the uh, coffin lid, so he hammered it down, but not too much. Lo and behold, he is um, put in um, this type of coffin, stacked on to, into the dead wagon, brought out of the prison camp um, on his way out, you know, roughly far enough from the stockade, um, uh, Woodlawn Cemetery is roughly a mile um, from the stockade yard, he uh, opens up the lid of the coffin, uh, goes to the driver, and in a dramatic way, points at him and says, come to judgment, and the driver allegedly saw him thinking that he was a, a ghost and darted off to the woods. The uh, the escapee uh, darted off into the other direction of the woods. But you have um, also prisoners um, trying to pass them off as civilian contractors. Tunneling, um, you know, building the tunnels was 
was a, a big way of escape for uh, Elmira prisoners. Did that ever work? Did they ever dig a successful tunnel under the wall? Yes. Yep. Um, Barry Benson's known for this and some other ones. Um, more than uh, 300 escaped Elmira prison. So they they, uh, they had a large numbers um, escape in, in various ways. Um, the, trying to document some of the, the escapes are easier than, than other ones. Um, but I think tunneling was the most, um, was the one that was done the most. Um, passing off a civilian was hard to do, and the escapee from the dead house, um, that was extremely unique. And that was, was very clever. Now, the war comes to an end. The, uh, there's no further need for a prison camp. What, what happens to Elmira after the war? Right. After the war, um, Elmira is used to rendezvous um, Union soldiers to get them together to basically file them out, and that is it. That is it. So by, you know, uh, late 1865, um, the camp itself is um, being taken down. Is there anything there today to see? No. Um, what we have in Elmira, the Shemung Historical Society does a, an excellent job. They have an exhibit uh, on the on the prison now. That society is right downtown in Elmira. It, it, further along up the uh, Shemung River, this is where the uh, the prison camp was located. They did a memorial there, um, which uh, they did, and it's a nice memorial. But there's it's not like when you go to Andersonville where you have the reconstructed stockade. It's just the monument. Um, that is there, and they actually sectioned out where the stockade corners would be existed. They put um, little markers, uh, four markers, to show you, um, to get an idea of how large the prison camp was. Is it, uh, is it public land or a park land, or is it? It's, it's public land. It's public so, so it's not built over. It, right. Um, I, I should be careful because really there are a, a line of houses that is in one section of the stockade, but where Foster's Pond is, um, that is public land. There's a walking trail right by it. But, it, you know, if you didn't see the monument, the, the monument's nice. It has, um, it has the American flag, um, the New York State flag, and the Confederate flag um, there with a, a description, a, a large um, kind of a narrative of the prison camp. Um, Jones has mentioned there and the amount of prisoners held there. Um, but that is it, to really see the trinkets, um, to get an idea, get a grasp of the prisoner life, um, the Shemung Historical Society. Uh, has exhibits on that. So, if uh, listeners, if you're traveling in that direction, uh, stop by and see see where these people were held and and what uh, what they've left behind. The uh, and building monuments to to prisons like this is can can be fraught with all kinds of meaning. You point out there there are flags of both the Union and Confederacy on the monument. Uh, it sounds like a reconciliationist That's right. theme to it. Uh, it was not always that way. You point out in in, in the 1870s, uh, Elmira was still very much a point of contention between the North and South. That's right. That's right. Um, to the point where, because Elmira is known with such a high death rate, and as you you know you're you're into Reconstruction at this point, you have uh, people up north screaming about Andersonville, and you have people down south screaming about Elmira. And even it goes further than that um, as you get to the turn of the century as far as, and I was told this at um, going up to Elmira doing research um, at the, uh, at the um, Chemung Historical Society as far as, you know, it was given a black eye. Um, they've had Southerners come up saying, you know, you're the people that killed my um, great-grandfather, that sort of thing. So, you know, it's something that Elmira had to live with uh, for a while. 
and maybe even to this day. In, in a sense, it brings us back to where we started with the, uh, the comparative question about Elmira and Andersonville. That's right. Uh, you, you don't have some of the things that Andersonville had. You don't have the the, the deadline, the, the the mark. If you cross it, the guards will shoot you down. Right. Uh, did the guards kill many of the Elmira inmates? Um, not really. Um, they, they kept a pretty close eye on them. Those that were uh, able to escape um, were recaptured. Um, not all, but but some. The uh, it, it's funny because when you think about the guards, I mean, there are some instances where guards um, kill their own by misfiring weapons, that sort of thing, or drinking too heavily. I mean, going through the records of the National Archives, it was incredible to see the amount. Uh, um, you know, public drunkenness uh, with the guards and them being arrested. Going into a saloon, one guard went into a saloon and started firing his, uh, his uh, Springfield. So it, it's just interesting. Um, I'm, I'm going to get into uh, another book looking at the prison camp guards um, up north um, and hope to expand upon that. Well, I think that that, uh, that is on the same level as this book. I think it will be very interesting and our readers will want to take a look at it. Um, Mike, we are out of time for the week, but uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Great. I appreciate it being here. And listeners, you'll want to take a, a look at Michael P. Gray's book, The Business of Captivity, Elmira and its Civil War Prison, and uh, hopefully you'll tune in again soon. Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.